You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So over the next three weeks, as we prepare for the Advent season, we're going to be spending all of our time in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, and, and, and while the whole book of Ephesians is certainly worthy of our time and our consideration, uh, the reason that we're going to spend time just in chapter 2 is because if you look at back at the things that we've preached through this year, a lot of them have been lofty and high and, and big ideas. I mean, we plumbed the depths of the narrative of the Exodus, and, and as we prepare to enter into the Advent season, we thought it was only fitting that we would spend a few weeks preparing by just resting in our identity founded in the simple yet complex mysteries of the gospel of Jesus. And so as we, we look to Ephesians 2, we're doing that because I was thinking if somebody were to ask me where they should go in the Bible if they just wanted one passage where they could find out what it is that Christians believe about who God is, who humans are, how humans are to relate to God, and what Jesus has accomplished, I would probably tell them to begin with the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. These verses tell the story of humanity apart from God, They explain how it's possible that any person could come to know God in relationship. They explain the barriers between God and man that naturally exist. And they explain who is ultimately responsible for anybody becoming a follower of God. They tell us a a love story of God toward His people. And the first chapter of the letter that we're, we're not going to address really is, begins with Paul telling the Ephesian church how blessed they are in Christ. In fact, he writes a poem to tell the church how blessed they are in the work of Jesus. He tells them that they're beloved, that they have a heavenly inheritance. He tells the church um, all about the hopes that he has for them and growing in their faith and in their obedience. And, and it's a triumphant Chapter, it's full of big, lofty language, complex theological ideas, but chapter 2 begins with a few words that totally change the pace of what Paul's talking about. Paul moves from high and poetic and literary language that's somewhat impersonal to deeply personal language, abrupt personal language. And the language is the beginning of Paul telling the church their biography. And he begins with the story of human birth, saying, and you were dead. If you're in the room this morning and you have placed your hope in Christ, never forget this. You used to be dead. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ this morning, you this very morning are a dead man or woman walking. And if you've ever been to a funeral or seen a dead body, you're well aware of the heaviness of that reality. 
Death, more than anything in all of creation, is final and powerful, and it always seems to win. Even the best doctors, some of whom are sitting in this room, know that that their practices are stall tactics at best. No one escapes death. There's never been a surprise at a funeral. And Paul continues, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying to the Christians in Ephesus, you were dead even though you were alive. You were dead in your sin. You followed the world and you followed Satan himself for guidance and for direction. And it didn't make you unique at all. In fact, it made you like everyone else who has ever roamed the earth. You were dead and Paul says you were a child of wrath. Your father and mother were the just and right hatred of God toward your rebellion. Because your God was your own desire, Paul says. You did what you wanted when you wanted. Your body and your mind produced only wickedness. Church, this is a dark story. It's one that has cosmic and historic implications. Some of you are probably wondering why God's word would be saying such horrible things about God's people. And really it's, it's simple. It goes back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Since they rebelled against God in the garden of Eden, death has been the end of the story for humans. Born to be like our parents, sinful and rebellious, selfish and fearful. Some of us don't like the thought of being like our parents or even our grandparents. And we certainly don't like the thought of being like those foolish rebels in the opening account of the book of Genesis who had everything yet rebelled. But if we're honest, we all end up like them. We, like our ancestors, will always die. But Paul isn't simply talking about our mortality. He's saying that humans, apart from the graceful and radical work of God in their lives, will be dead even as they take in oxygen and blood pumps through their veins. He tells us that our propensity, that our direction is always to follow the course of the world around us, to follow the powers of darkness and Satan, meaning that humans naturally seek to suit their own desires, selfishly fight for their own protection, foolishly try to manufacture their own meaning and their own purpose, and all of it is tainted with the work of Adam and Eve in the garden. The forbidden fruit is as appealing today as it ever was. The pleasures of sin are always alluring. 
Solomon tells us poetically in the Proverbs that we know that stolen water is sweet and that bread eaten in secret is pleasurable. Some of us were not or maybe still are not aware that we're living in spiritual death. Why? I think it's because the things that we pursue often seem so promising. Career advancement holds the promise of wealth and fame and respect and security. Sexual relationships promise passion and connection and orgasm and pleasure. Gluttony and drunkenness and drug use all make our endorphins fire and intoxicate us with something that seems a lot like happiness and fulfillment. Positions of power inflate us with self-importance. And we think we're manufacturing for ourselves lives full of meaning and joy and purpose. Some of us hear those examples and, and think, that's not like me at all. Because some of us, even in our spiritual death, didn't pursue the obvious vices of Satan's world. Some pursue philanthropy and service and moralism. Things that on their own right are good and might even produce positive change in the world. Rather than gluttony, some obsess over good health. Rather than drunkenness, some are teetotalers. Rather than greed, some are generous. But all of these things, apart from Christ, are still dead works, worthy of condemnation. After all, Adam and Eve didn't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil simply because it was good to the taste. They ate it because they were promised that it would make them wise, that they would be like God themselves. So lives of death don't always consist of idolizing pleasure or money or power or worshiping false gods. Sometimes death reigns in a life built around making oneself as morally good as humanly possible. In order to please others or to please some creation of a God that doesn't exist. In order to be so inscrutable that you yourself are like a God. But in these lives, self-righteousness, egotistical inflation, and disdain for neighbor slowly grows in the heart of the moralist. So apart from the work of God in Christ, both the hedonist and the moralist are dead in their sin. Both the intellectual and the fool, both the family man and the womanizer, the social worker and the prostitute, the rich man and the beggar the doctor and the drug dealer, all dead in their sin. The radical equity of human sin is that it affects all and it kills all and has mercy on none. Looking closely at the text, what we would see is that Paul lists seven aspects of human depravity. And seven all throughout the Bible is a number of completions. Wholeness, 
Paul is telling us, even in the subtext, that humans are completely helpless and wholly condemned on their own merits. After all, he said that they are dead. And dead people are the most helpless ones of all. For a dead man cannot rouse himself from his permanent slumber. He can't cry for help from his coffin. He can't reach out his hand for help from a neighbor. No, dead people are good for really three things. For burial, scientific study, or the furnace. But nothing more. Paul finishes this biography of mankind like this. He says, And you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Universally, people are objects of God's wrath. In their pursuit of life, they find themselves only naked and dead before an almighty and holy and terrifying and glorious God, worthy only of punishment. This is true of you, it's true of your neighbors, it's true of your family members, it's true of your friends, it's true in positions of power, and it's true of those who live on the streets. Children of wrath. Thankfully, Paul keeps writing. He says, but God. These two words, church, are monumental. The story was all but written for us. The end was all but settled for us. Our destiny was determined. Our lives were fruitless, but God. The beautiful thing about Ephesians 2 is that it has the basics of every person's biography who has ever walked the face of the earth. The first three verses being the story for every single person, but beginning in verse 4, a new biography for those who have been saved by grace through Christ begins, and it begins with these two words, but God. See, before some of you were defined merely as an addict, but God. Some of you were defined as a liar, but God. Some of you were perverts, but God. Egotistical brutes, but God. Money worshipers, but God. Thieves, but God. Bad friends, but God. Disrespectful family members, but God. Fearful cowards, but God. Insecure children, but God. Gluttons, but God. Anxious do-gooders, but God. Self-righteous rule-makers, but God. Tyrants in your home, but God. Those who cause divisions and start fights, but God. Idol worshipers, but God. One who is like the rest of mankind, but God. A child of wrath, but God. A follower of Satan, but God. The offspring of Adam, but God. But God, being rich in mercy. 
Even though all of these things may have been true of us, we have hope because our God is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead, sinful enemies and children of wrath, God loved us with a great love. Though we were unloving ourselves, he loved us with a great love. Though we were unlovable altogether, he loved us with a great love. Though he could have rightly hated us, rejected us, punished us, destroyed us, and maybe worse, ignored us. He loved us with a great love. Church, this is the time that you say amen. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the apostle writes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. This is where the biography gets especially hopeful for the church. God, who is rich in mercy, who has loved us with an awesome love and resurrected us, no longer dead. The biography for the church no longer ends with death. Now those who have hoped in Christ are alive. But the text doesn't simply say that God has made us alive, which that would be marvelous on its own. But Paul says that we've been made alive with Christ. And that's important on two levels. First, it points us back to that word in verse 4, loved. It says he loved us with a great love. And that verb tense in the Greek is the aorist tense, which means that it is not only something that happened or started in the past, but it refers to something that definitively happened and is no longer happening. A one-time event. Now Paul isn't saying that God used to love us and now he doesn't. He's just saying that there was an occasion in which the great love that God has for us was made manifest most clearly. God loved us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God loved us at the cross on Calvary. He loved us in the empty tomb. See, though the world, we like the world, followed others and we followed Satan, Christ lived a life that was a true life. He did not live a life of death, but he lived a life of true life and obedience and relationship with the Father. And it was God's love for us driving him to send his son to live on our behalf. He loved us in sending Christ. See, though we were living as dead men and women, Christ died on our behalf, even though he was the one who had truly lived. In his death, he became the child of wrath in our place. God loved us as he made his son the child of wrath. In Jesus' death, he put to death the death of Adam and the death of all mankind. In his death, he suffered the effects of our wandering and our rebellion. Our sin and death cut, pierced, bruised, and caused cardiac arrest in our Lord and Savior. Our death took up residence in the God of life 
the God-man Jesus. And just when it looked like death would be the story, not only for men, but for the one who was called the Son of Man, there was a big but God in the cosmic narrative. But God didn't stay dead. There is a tomb, church. There's a tomb in a garden outside the city of Jerusalem. And it holds nothing but the power of sin and death. Buried for good. Because what you won't find in it is the body of Christ. There's an empty tomb because Christ has victoriously resurrected and he's alive even as we sit here today. He has human blood pumping through his human veins as he reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And church, through the resurrection of Christ, there is new life to be had for dead men, women, and children. That's why Paul says we've been made made alive with Christ. Because Christians, we were dead and now we're not which means that we are participating in the resurrection of Christ. We've been resurrected through the power of His resurrection. And we're alive with Him to reign forevermore. Participating in this new life that He's established. Being the new Adam in a new creation, in a new garden, which doesn't have a tree of life at its center, but it has an empty tomb. The resurrection power that has given us new life and hope is our only hope. Church, and we will never graduate from this. We will never graduate from our deep need for an empty tomb. There will never be a morning where you don't desperately need the reality that on the third day the tomb was empty. Without a living Savior, we have no power against the remaining bits of our old, dead selves. If Christ wasn't alive right now and empowering us right now and pleading for us right now at the right hand of our Father, we would have no hope. Our marriages would have no hope. Our struggles with addiction would be far worse than struggles. Our attempts toward loving others would result only in hurt feelings and empty promises and vanity. But God, God is alive and his son is alive and the spirit of him who has been raised from the dead now lives within those who have faith in him. Church, we're living among the dead. We have a good story to tell. It's a humble story. It's a humble story of those who are helpless, for we were dead. It's a hopeful story. A hopeful story for those who have no hope, because now we're alive. It's a transformation story for those who are stagnant. For we were stuck in our sin, following the course of the world and Satan's cues. But now, we are alive together with Christ, who conquered death, participating in a new life that we could have never imagined. 
Church, it's an identity-changing story for those who feel unlovable, for those who feel unwanted, for those who feel undefined, for those who are uninspired, and for those who have been unnamed. Because we were children of wrath, but God loved us and has made us His. Church, I was a rebel and He made me His friend. I was a worker of death, yet he worked death for me. I was no different than anyone else who had ever roamed the earth, but now, in his son, he's called me his beloved. I was weak against all of my desires, but now he's giving me new desires that lead to real joy and real change. Church, rejoice in your story because God has interrupted it with his mercy and with his great love and with his son who has conquered what we could never conquer, death. And for those of you who are in the room this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, hear this. You are dead. And on your own merit, you are without hope. But you are loved. You are sinful and wicked beyond what you could even imagine. But he's provided meaning for you. And you can have new life through the resurrection of Jesus. And all you have to do is call upon him. Hope in him. Believe that at the center of your story you need an empty tomb. And he can raise you from the dead. He can give you new life. And it will be a full life. A joyful life. A true life. Church, my prayer is that regardless of whether or not you've placed your faith in Christ this morning or you've not, that before we leave this room, that at the center of all of our biographies, we would have a big, blood-red, but God as its center. Though we live in the land of the dead, we have words and we have the spirit and we have the God of life. And so let us live and worship accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your son. We thank you for stories that involve but God. Stories of redemption and of new life, stories of forgiveness and, and healing, stories of power, but not our power, but yours. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son that he might live though we only worked death. We thank you that you sent your son so that that he might die so that we don't have to have stories that end in death. And we thank you ultimately for a resurrection and for a living Savior who pleads for us even now, offering life to all who would come to him. Pray, Lord, that, 
that in weeks and months and years to come, that this congregation would be a beacon of new life in this neighborhood, constantly and confidently proclaiming the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Would we feast on it with confidence and with joy and with gratitude, knowing that nothing of our own merit has worked us to be loved by you, but that you have orchestrated love for us, that you have loved us with a great love. We thank you for that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we